Jag heter Tessa Praun och är intendent här. Och jag har ansvarat för utställningen med Smadar Dreyfus. För ett år sedan så besökte jag en institution som heter Extra City i Antwerpen i Belgien. Och upplevde där Smadar Dreyfus då helt nya verk Mother's Day. Och jag hade egentligen ingen förkunskap om verket när jag gick in. Och inte heller om den situation där det här verket uppstod. Men när jag stod där i mörkret så blev jag väldigt direkt drabbad av de här rösterna. Och det var verkligen en fysisk påverkan. Så att även om man inte har en förkunskap om just den här specifika situationen. Och jag tror kanske också att om man inte skulle ha de engelska översättningarna som finns med i verket. Så är de här rösterna så pass starka och uttrycksfulla. Att vi nog ändå kan förstå att det handlar om någon sorts distans mellan människor. Och att de här rösterna uttrycker längtan och saknad. Och här ikväll så har vi bjudit in Anne Karp som är författare och sociolog baserad i London. Som även undervisar på The London Metropolitan University. Och hon skriver framförallt om samhälle och kultur för The Guardian och bidrar regelbundet till BBCs sändningar. Hon är även medredaktör till en tidskrift om judisk identitet. Och hon har skrivit ett flertal böcker, varav en är om den mänskliga rösten, människorösten, som heter The Human Voice. How this extraordinary instrument reveals essential clues about who we are. Och Anne kommer ikväll i sin föreläsning att utgå från den här boken och prata om rösten utifrån fysikalitet och känslor och även kulturella betingelser. Och hur det här, alltså hur rösten får uttryck i Mother's Day. Anne, I'm very, very pleased to have you here and that you accepted the invitation and that you will share your thoughts on the voice with us. Thank you. Can you all hear me? Um, first of all, thank you all for speaking English so that I don't have to learn Swedish. And uh, thank you, Tessa. I assume you've said nice things about me, but I have no way of knowing, of course. I'm going to start by describing my own reaction to Mother's Day. And then I'm going to go on and talk more generally, more analytically, perhaps, about some of what I think are its most original and interesting features. So at the start, we see a cloudy hilltop. It's almost without sound. And it feels to me like a sort of full emptiness. It's, it's empty, but it's full. And then cloud, behind the cloud, noises begin to emerge and they become more distinct. And you hear a whistle here and some movement there. And the clouds move, but you can't really see anything. And that's disturbing. You know, one comes to an installation, to an artwork, and one expects to see. And we can't see anything. We want to be able to make out discrete sounds and precise outlines. And we feel frustrated because we can't. And I'll speak about this a bit more later on. So we're promised something and it's almost as if we get nothing at the beginning. And yet we're invited to linger on this nothingness, this indistinct sight. 
and not get much information in return. And it's only later when you start to think about it that you realize that Smadar Dreyfus puts us, what I call the viewer-listener, almost in the same situation as the protagonists there, as the families. You know, we're straining to distinguish sounds and images, but finding it difficult, just as they are. So then we hear more sounds that seem more distinct, and we hear cries and shouts. And what are they? The first time I heard it, I felt almost as if I was hearing some cries from the natural world. I wondered if I was hearing fear or if I was hearing anger, and then I realized I was hearing shouts. And as you start to orientate yourself in those shouts, I don't know about you, but I felt a sense of shock. How can endearments be bellowed out and shouted? Under what circumstances does a person literally megaphone something that is normally spoken at very close proximity, or perhaps even whispered or sobbed? Shouts we associate with anger and impatience. You know, we yell when we want someone to do something, when we're directing a crowd or dealing with people as a group or in public. And usually when we shout at somebody who we know well in a public space, it's an emergency. You know, mind that car. Or we feel a certain amount of shame. You know, I think, oh, the people in the queue behind me heard me shouting at my daughter. You know, or I've had an argument with my partner and people have overheard. So shouting and intimacy don't normally belong together. So here we know right away that the private has slipped into the public. Well, of course, we all know that these distinctions aren't watertight anymore. We know that we live in the era of Big Brother. We know that you know, reality TV shows have seemingly intimate domestic situations in public. We know that with the mobile phone, we hear extraordinary things, private things in public. And in a sense, we've all turned into eavesdroppers now. You know, we're an international community of eavesdroppers. So that we know that these distinctions of public and private no longer hold good in the same way. But still, there is a shock when you hear in Mother's Day people shouting many happy returns, I hope to see you and I miss you, because you know that these aren't exhibitionists. And then what is so strange is that these voices not just are shouted, but they echo. And this gives them a kind of poignancy. It feels like they're, they're boomeranging back. They're being returned to sender. So that they sort of go out and reach their target and then come straight back again. And it almost feels like these voices can only ever be in a communication with themselves. That they're a kind of dialogue for one. And then, of course, there's something very bizarre about them being transmitted by megaphone. Because through the megaphone, they lose the timbre of intimacy, the colour of intimacy, and they become a sort of species of declamation. And it's almost as if intimacy can't survive in this bizarre kind of political separation, that these divided families are kind of almost denuded of 
you know, the nuances of intimacy. And what we get instead are almost ritualistic expressions of hope and desire. And of course, uh, Dreyfus has been here before. If you've seen any of her other works, she's very interested in this public-private intersection and what the megaphone does. Lifeguards, for example, the voice is communicated through the megaphone as well. And in fact, so much of these voices denuded of specifics that the shouters have to actually identify themselves. So at one point, a speaker says, who's speaking? one of the listeners and of course that's what we're asking as well as the viewer listeners who's speaking and as the voices go out and they come back these echoes they sort of destabilize the voice and after a while it's almost like you can't distinguish individual specific voices they become part of a larger audio quilt and a community of linked voices but unsynchronized voices and then, of course, we're also watching something. And we're watching subtitles. But they're not static. They move about the screen. You know, one pops up here, another pops up there. And you realize that Dreyfus is placing the speakers and is distinguishing them spatially. She's trying to find a visual equivalent for an audio trajectory. And at the beginning, when I first saw it, I thought, well, this is like the subtitles are almost the visual equivalent of voices being bounced around the valleys. But then, of course, you, you start to attune to it and you realize that we, the viewer listeners, are positioned on the mother's side. So we can hear them louder and their voices, their speech, their texts are larger in the bottom left field. And the children's are further away and are placed in the middle field and smaller. So she uses print to help us orientate ourselves. But even when you've sort of worked out what's going on, she never allows us to settle into a stable audio space. You're never in that moment where you think... Ah, yes, I know what's going on. I know where I am. She's always acting against that. And for me, the first point of rupture, as it were, occurred when one of the mothers shouts, my life, which they do quite a lot throughout. And the reason I was shocked by that, and I almost wanted to laugh, was that for me, she sounded like almost a caricature of a Jewish mother. I mean, in England, if you want a caricature of a Jewish mother, you go, oh, my life. And here are these Druze mothers saying, my life. And for me, there was an immediate sort of tear there almost. Then there was another point where one of the mothers shouts out, I'm Esther. And this is a very highly charged name in Jewish history. Esther, the story of Esther is told, the Megillah Esther, the book of Esther in the Old Testament, is the story of the Jewish festival of Purim, and is in fact a story of the woman who becomes the queen of Persia and who thwarts a plot against the Jews with the help of her cousin Mordechai and sort of saves the Jews through her courage. And here you realize that it's these Israeli Jews who are responsible for this woman's predicament. So you have this immediate double understanding of Esther. So I think at various points, in fact, throughout Mother's Day, what happens is you have these echoing voices of mothers and children, and these voices overlap. They become entangled. They fold back on themselves. 
And also, for me at least, as a Jewish viewer listener, these Druze families fold back on Jewish families and you're brought back constantly to your own mother and your own child and your own voice. There's so much going on in such a small space. You've got all these ritualistic expressions of praise and adoration that are so far from how parents and children normally communicate in modern life. There's nothing banal. There's nothing improvised here. There's nothing throwaway. There's no rebellion or tetchiness or bad temper that we most experience in our relationships with our mothers and our children. There's only yearning and missing. And at one point, somebody bursts into song and says, you are full of ardor and goodness. And you sense these very idealized mothers, you know, who are beloved, adored. They're almost mythologized beings, eulogized by their children. And these mothers have become symbols of the good and their voices performative. And then the mothers, of course, are also using this very heightened language. You know, may you bury me. It's a sort of very poignant attempt to establish the natural order, which is that mothers die before their children. But you sense that this is a place where the natural order can't be counted upon. And then in the middle of all this very heightened speech, suddenly these mothers burst into very normal, prosaic motherliness. You know, how is your health? And of course, I laugh there because, you know, what do Jewish mothers always ask their children? You know, how is your health? And of course, I've always felt that all mothers are Jewish mothers, really. So here was confirmation. And then the moments where their voices crack with emotion, can't contain the emotion. I heard you, my life. And then the mother is heard faintly sobbing in the background. And again, you find it hard to resist and not to sort of sob along with them, you know, for one's own mother and one's own child and the inevitable separations that happen in any family's life. So again and again, I think when watching this work, one is in the specifics, but also in something much more universal. And there's these constant shifts of language, you know, so you have these may God keep you for us, very poetic, almost biblical language. And then you have these very truncated bits where, you know, at one point, one child says, goodbye, mother, with your permission. I mean, rather beautiful, poetic way of saying it. And then very simple forms of expression. I miss you. And in places, just somebody announcing their name. And of course, we all in everyday life move between these different registers. So we are all multilingual in some sense. And you see that in the different registers here, that we all use the poetic alongside the banal. But in Mother's Day, there's little that actually feels banal because every interchange feels as though it's invested with meaning and with subtext because nothing can be qualified in shouted, megaphoned communication. Nothing can be taken back. Nothing can be discounted. Each single utterance is charged with meaning and made to stand for a greater whole. And yet at the same time, there's a very eloquent silence in this work. 
And I think you're never entirely sure if the silence is one created by Dreyfus herself, who's in a sense of like a collagist. She's, you know, sticking together these voices or whether this is a silence that's arisen naturally when both parties withdraw for a moment from these great demands of straining and yelling. You know, is this just a natural resting point between shouts? We know that there are several hundred metres between the speakers on both sides and that they have to pause to allow their voices to carry across the valley. And of course, this seems such an antiquated form of communication. It feels so clunky to modern ears. And it's so strange that the speakers are responsible for the emission of their voices, but also in a sense for the transmission of their voices. They don't just, you know, usually we utter our voices and we take for granted that our voices will reach the listener. But here they have to almost guide their voices, acknowledge the journey their voices have to take. And it's a journey that their embodied self can't take. You know, their voices go where their bodies can't go. Some of the time, though, I feel that Dreyfus herself has interposed those silences. She wants us to step back. She wants us to be in it. She wants us to be outside it. She wants us to step back and to allow the voices to travel towards us and to permeate us. And some of those silences to me feel very empty. They speak about the impossibility of communicating in this way. Then, of course, we are seeing Dreyfus's work because she's chosen to chop up these utterances in a very specific way. She's chosen to chop them up into very short subtitles rather than stringing them along. And it's almost like she's trying to mimic the staccato, disruptive nature of these exchanges by breaking them up in this additional way so that one mother's stream of speech will maybe have a succession of three or four different subtitles. And this, of course, reminds us constantly of the difference between the visual and the oral that unlike visual images, the oral, the voice, the audio only exists in time. It can't be frozen. It can't be arrested. As soon as the voice has been produced, it goes. And written voices acquire a fixity, a material solidity that is completely different from the voice. And a spoken word is irrecoverable. It's in the embodiment of time. I've spoken that word. That word will never come back. I can never haul it back in. It's gone, just like that moment. It's the audio version of time. And yet what we see is something that has a greater solidity. And I think you move in Mother's Day between these different modes of communicating. And some of the time, the language, the, the, the text seems dead next to the pregnant sound. The sound is so full. There's such connotations and associations with the voice. And the written words seem like a very meager, thin, impoverished little thing. And then in other places, the words seem like a very valuable substitute, an aid. They're like a prosthesis. You know, they're like crutches when you can't walk that help us to distinguish and to understand these very muffled Arabic 
shouts. Because, of course, that's another dimension of the contrast between the spoken and the written. One of them is in Arabic and the other is in English. And which one should we give precedence to? You know, if we're not Arabic speakers, should we give precedence to what we can read in English and therefore understand or to that which we can hear, which has all those other dimensions, but which we can't literally understand. And can we hold those two together at the same time? Now, of course, we don't need to understand the words to understand the voice. And, you know, various people have done different bits of research. One person suggested that emotion can be recognized in segments of speech as short as 60 milliseconds, 60 thousandths of a second. It's hard to even conceive of such a tiny sliver of time. But, I mean, any one of us knows that time. You know, you phone your mother or your child and they only have to say hello and you say, what's wrong? You know, I mean, we all do that voice reading the whole time and you don't need language for that. Um, the human voice has got an unrivaled capacity to flood somebody listening with it, to permeate it. We are all very permeable by the voice. Mother's Day, I think, asks us constantly to adjudicate, in a sense, between the claims of the audio and the claims of the spoken of the written, between Arabic and English, between the mother and the child, and somehow reconcile these differences. But Dreyfus seems to be saying, to me at any rate, that they can never be reconciled, that we have to come to terms with dissonance, fracture, contradiction, friction. And I think that she shows how Humanity lies in the attempt to reconcile these different things. And I'll be comparing her to some other works of art later on. And even the visual images, there are these weird disjunctures in Mother's Day. Sometimes you cut away from the black screen to images of the shouting hill. And yet what we can see remains still opaque because the view is shrouded in mist, for example, and the only thing that's moving are clouds and fog, apart from the odd bird who flies apart. And paradoxically, I think that we see more in Mother's Day when we see nothing at all, when the screen is dark, that the vision adds little. All it supplies literally and metaphorically is fog. And it's almost as if in Dreyfus's world, we can't see and hear at the same time. And there's one point where she cuts from this dark screen to a very bleached out white screen where you see it's very fogged over. And you see light, but actually, of course, you see nothing. What you feel is that that white vista is more full of absence. So she's constantly playing with presence and absence between what is alive and what is inert. And it's interesting, when I learned through the interview with Tessa that she filmed those clouds later on, not at the same time as she did the audio recording, I felt a little bit cheated. And then I had to examine that feeling of being cheated, you know, because Dreyfus says again and again, this is not a documentary. 
This is a kind of intervention. And she's constructed it and she's layered it. One feels the tug in oneself to, in a way, want it to be a simulacrum of this event that happens. And I felt myself at various places resisting the way she'd constructed it. Of course, these families, they are specific individual families, but at the same time, they evoke other families who are in situations where they're divided. One thinks of families who are divided by the Berlin Wall, for example, or Palestinian villages divided by the so-called security fence. And as in all those situations, what we see here are lived borders, borders mapped onto the lives of families, imposed boundaries, but boundaries that affect not just geography, but intimate life. And just occasionally, one has a feeling of farce. Now, I'm sure that that wasn't the people who were living in that situation, but you feel that Dreyfus is sensitive to the farcical elements and that that in itself is a form of resistance. You know, you think you've silenced us, but we are not going to be silenced. We are going to blare. We're going to trumpet our most intimate feelings, no matter what form of communication we use. We, you know, we are going to shout out our connections. And there is an element of farce, I think, in these shouted communications alongside the poignancy. Roland Barthes talked about the grain of the voice. And he was actually talking about the singing voice, but I think it applies just as much to the spoken voice. And what he meant by that was the, the materiality of the voice, you know, the, it, it's, its corporeal nature, the timbre, the breath, the voluptuousness of the sound itself, in a way what you could call the body in the voice. And for millennia, when you heard someone's voice, you knew that the owner of that voice, the speaker, was nearby because voice and body went together. And then, of course, the telephone arrived, the phonograph, the gramophone, the radio talking pictures, and these seemed to rupture body and voice. And it was very disturbing. I mean, when the telephone first arrived, it provoked a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, incomprehension, contempt, People talked about the power of darkness residing in it. There was an article in Scientific American. A reporter said, my own material existence I am reasonably assured of. I can imagine my friend at the other end of the line. But now between us, there is an airy nowhere inhabited by voices and nothing else. Hello land, I should call it. The vocal inhabitants of this strange region have an amazing vanishing quality. Even while you are talking casually to one or another of them, you may become aware that you have been unaccountably cut off. The telephone seems to have no visible agency. Well, of course, this seems rather quaint to us nowadays because we've become so used to living in a world with no visible agency with rupture. I mean, we call it the virtual world. We've learned how to, in a sense, hear the body in the voice, even when a speaker's very far away. And I remember, 
I'm old enough to remember in the end of 1958 in the UK when the Queen unveiled something called STD, not sexually transmitted diseases, which we now think of for that, but subscriber trunk dialing. So for the first time, you could dial a phone to someone far away and you didn't need to be put through by an operator. So the voices of people far away no longer had to be mediated by a third party. It was like, it was as if somehow voices had been liberated into the ether and didn't travel down phone lines. Somehow the illusion of the voices traveling through the open space was created. Nowadays, we don't think about these things. You know, nobody is impossible to contact. Everyone's always available. There's no dark side of the moon in modern communication. And we just assume that technology can erase distance and overcome separation. So it's profoundly shocking for us to think about the primitive way in which these Drew's family members communicate. First of all, they have to travel to speak to each other. They need to be rough in roughly the same space. It's almost as if communication has become re-embodied, that through the megaphone, voice and body have been reunited, or at least voice and space. It's almost as if history's been reversed. And this is extraordinary in the era of Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. You know, the idea of this directional communication. But of course, Mother's Day doesn't just present us with the unmediated sounds of the megaphone but with the megaphone recorded. So it's a double mediation. And so we don't only focus on what's being said, but how it's being said, and the megaphone's shortcomings as a method of communication. So it's very curious listening to this piece, I think, because you're aware of how clumsy the megaphone is, how primitive it is. It distorts the voice in a way that seems very shocking in the digital age. And at the same time, it's this very poignant lifeline. It's this precious reconnection. So while it almost reintroduces the body to the voice, it's also this painful reminder of separation. Because these family members on the Israeli and Syrian sides are close enough to hear each other, but not close enough to touch each other. And it seems to me that touch is the crucial absence in Mother's Day. It's what is both yearned for and is absent and forbidden. The other person, the other family member, is tantalizingly physically near, but they can't be touched. And it's almost like there's a dance of absence and presence. And after seeing it several times, it struck me very forcibly that Mother's Days is almost about the impossibility of touch and the voice standing in for touch. And that isn't so strange. I'll come to that in a moment. But I want to here just digress slightly and go um, and talk about the notion of, of the fatic. Some of you may know that was coined by the anthropologist Bronislav Malinowski. And Malinowski defined fatic. He says, it describes the kind of conversation that has no intrinsic meaning, but is simply a kind of small talk, where the very fact of saying something, anything, is significant, irrespective of the verbal content. 
He says, the breaking of silence, the communion of words, is the first act to establish the links of fellowship. It's very odd because Malinovsky never, when he describes Fatik, does he talk about the voice. He's always talking about words. But I think Fatik is a property of the voice as much as anything else. You know, I mean, in England, I think the apotheosis of Fatik conversation is when people talk about the weather, which English people talk about a lot, you know, and, ooh, it's, you know, ooh, nasty morning, ooh, nice, the sun's come out. And, of course, they're not really talking about the weather. They're actually using their voice to make a connection with someone else. Because Fatik's power is in what is communicated non-verbally, especially vocally. That's why the words aren't important. In Fatik's speech, words are simply the carriers of the voice. They're excuses for it, opportunities for it to be heard. And I think that Mother's Day is an example of Fatik communication. Because whatever the actual words that are being shouted, their real point is to signal to the other party that the shouter is there, actually there, physically, materially, corporeally close. And it's almost like you hear again and again in this work, the breaking of silence. Then silence is re-established and then it's broken again. You feel this sense of breaking. And in fact, quite a lot of the shouts in Mother's Day are about the voice itself. God protect your voice, cries one person. You hear me? Your voice isn't clear? Repeat, I don't hear. It almost becomes a disquisition about the voice itself. Of course, the shouters are aware that they are being heard, not only by the other party, but by the, all the other people gathered on the other side. And... There are so many dimensions of this. I mean, we bring to their voices all our own cultural experience. I mean, to me, I heard in those voices those wails and laments and, you know, ululations, almost like Arab women at funerals or at weddings or celebrating martyrs. You hear a kind of keening which people in the West don't use their voices in that way, women in the West on the whole. We're much more restrained in our use of the voice. This is full of abandon. It's very highly charged and very expressive. And there is the voice moving in these between the private and public again and again. There's that very shocking moment where one of the mothers says, can you please move so that you can be photographed by Reuters because they are doing a story on this. And you're immediately placed back into the broader political situation and you're aware that this is part of a political resistance and that we, the viewer listeners, and Dreyfus and the other parties aren't the only listeners to this. But there are journalists there using this. So that the voices in Mother's Day aren't just a response to a political situation, but they're also being used politically themselves. And then she piles in a lot of non-vocal sounds. There's the sound of the wind, which reminds us that this is a rather inhospitable terrain. There's the sound of military trucks. You know, the army is nearby. There's a helicopter buzzing ahead. Um, so we're reminded of Israeli military control over this land. There's birdsong, which immediately evokes 
a rather peaceful, idyllic space, which it could be, but then, you know, set against the helicopter. Um, sounds of excited crowds. You can hear the politics of the situations. Politics become audible. And I think you move between a feeling, it's a real dialectical experience, you move between feelings of despair, you know, how can families be divided like this, to feeling this is a triumphant overcoming of obstacles. You know, whatever physical impediments have been put their way, these Druze families have found ways of overcoming the situation. You know, the voices managed to travel freely across this ceasefire. The bodies can't, but the voices can, and no military presence can contain them. Mother's Day is a kind of celebration of the mother's voice. I mean, we're positioned on the mother's side. And, I mean, I could talk for hours, don't worry, I won't, about the importance of the mother's voice, which has been called a kind of umbilical cord, you know. Obviously, it's heard by the baby in the uterus. It's been described as a sonorous envelope that surrounds, sustains, and cherishes the child. And a sound bath, an audiophonic skin, the first psychic space. There have been lots of fascinating pieces of research, which I describe in my book, about how the mother's voice can affect the fetus's heart rate either slowing it down significantly. Other people have found it excites the baby. There are lots of examples of how the mother's voice can soothe. It's obviously conducted through the mother's body, so babies can feel their mother's voices. So there is this very close connection between the sound of the voice and touch. Now, babies in the womb experience the mother's voice physically. They don't just hear it in some remove. So that's what I think Dreyfus is picking up on, this connection between touch and voice and the voice standing for touch. We know also that the voice can make uh, separation bearable. You know, mothers who go into hospital now are recording their voices for their babies to have or their children to hear. Women in prison are recording tapes for their children to keep this thread, this connective tissue together. And we know that there is a kind of audiophonic feedback, a loop of communication that happens in healthy attachment between mothers and babies. And so attuned are small babies to their mother's intonation, one study found, that they suck faster if they hear that their mother has recorded a message specially addressed to them. I mean, how amazing is that? I'm very... I'm very skeptical of people who say well, research shows because you know you often find research you know the research has about three people in it in my book I dismantle quite a lot of research like that but that was actually a very interesting study so I think we can see Mother's Day in a sense as a, as a kind of love poem to the mother's voice and to the relationship between the mother's and and the baby's voice and what the psychiatrist Daniel Stern called the vitality effects, you know, far more important than the words, the surges of emotion, you know, the explosive surges, the crescendos, the fleeting nature, and then the decrescendo. And the level of arousal that excites in children. Daniel Stern's work, for those of you who don't know it, is very interesting. He looks at 
parents who can, and of course no one can do this the whole time, but parents who can match their children in vitality without overwhelming the child. With You know, there are parents who are overexcited. I, I fear I was one of those. I've been one of those, you know, who are so anxious about their children. They want to make sure their children have enough life. You know, and there are other parents whose voices are a little bit monotonous and don't really engage. And to try and get the right balance. And here, in a way, you see these attempts across a physical border to match vitality and excitement, interacting, you know, a trajectory of energy and it's charted. Okay, I've almost finished. I just want to end by saying that I think of Mother's Day as a liminal work. By liminal, I mean at the threshold, an in-between place, a place where something turns into something else. And it's liminal because, partly because the Golan Heights itself is a liminal place, a contested space between two warring countries. It's liminal because the Druze families themselves are in this rather ambiguous position. They're not citizens, they're residents of Israel. They didn't want to take citizenship. They have certain privileges by being residents, but they also lack full civil and political rights, as every Israeli Arab does. It's liminal because Mother's Day is situated between two worlds, the audio and the visual, and takes of both. And it's liminal because the voice is liminal. The voice travels from inside of us to outside of us. It travels from the individual to the group and to the collective. It's sort of an intermediary. It mediates us. Added to that liminal um, aspect, Dreyfus adds visual images, but they're always indeterminate. And I don't know if you know the work of the psychoanalyst Marion Milner, wonderful book called On Not Being Able to Paint. And she describes how when we learn to draw, we usually start by focusing on sharp outlines. But actually, the material world doesn't really manifest itself that way. It usually takes the form, when you really look and see, of bursts of color, and they only gradually emerge into separate touchable, solid objects. Now, that, of course, is true of how babies learn to see, but it's also true of how adults see. And Milner argues that if we are uncomfortable sitting in this sort of undifferentiated chaos, we impose boundaries too fast. We want those outlines because we feel safer. And it's a way of dealing with anxiety. And Marion Milner invites us to stay, to sit in that undifferentiated chaos for a little bit longer, to allow a sort of interplay between the chaos and the solid. And I think this is exactly what Mother's Day does. It moves us between these undifferentiated voices, between mist and silence. Then there are bursts of clarity, and then we go back to the indeterminate. And Dreyfus, like Marion Milner, beckons us to dwell, to stay in this liminal space and to trust that some kind of meaningful dialogue will emerge. And of course, as viewer listeners, we are also in a liminal space because what are we? Are we at an artwork? Are we at a slideshow? Is it a video projection? Is it an audio piece? Are we watching or are we listening? Are we passive or are we active? Or is there a third place? Are we eavesdroppers? 
Are we go-betweens? Dreyfus has led us here. Is she the eavesdropper-in-chief? She places us. Here we're placed in front of a barrier. So it's like we're onlookers, but we're also participants. We're viewers, but we're implicated. We're separated from the sound, but it envelops us. And we can't remain purely visitors. It's like we have to step forward and greet the sound, move towards the scene. And she makes us question our status in this work, not just our viewpoint, but almost our ear point. And then what of her? You know, she hasn't just recorded this, she's sculpted this. And one has to ask questions. Has she appropriated their voices? Has she used them as raw material for her own art? Dreyfus herself isn't in a liminal position. She's an Israeli. She lives in London. She's positioned between Hebrew and English. And she suffers from gradual loss of hearing. So she's positioned in between the hearing and non-hearing world. And so this kind of fractured voices that recede almost mimic her own difficulty in hearing. And just finally, this work evoked for me some other works. It reminded me when I first saw it of a monologue by Samuel Beckett, I don't know if any of you know it, called Not I, 1972, I think. It's set on a dark, pitch-black stage, and the actress is completely blacked out, apart from red mouth. And out of this mouth come a jumble of fragmented, disconnected phrases. There's a silent auditor on stage left, but he doesn't say anything. And these utterances are short, shards of speech. They don't really make sense. They evoke lots of things. But what you get the sense of is her compulsion to speak. And of course, that's what you feel here, the phatic compulsion to speak. The other thing it reminded me of a little bit, although it's completely different, is a work by Pina Bausch, Nelken, some of you may know. And there's a scene in that in which an apparently deaf man is on stage, his face completely immobile, and he's doing sign language to George Gershwin's The Man I Love, which is sung by a woman. And it's extraordinary. As this thing ever continues, you feel this dissonance, you feel this love against the odds somehow gets created. And I feel that Mother's Day in a way articulates the, these things, the yearning and compulsion of ruptured families to make contact through any means available. And watching this work, listening to it, it seems to want us to listen and then almost mock us where we can't hear much. It's as if it's asking us to acknowledge how impossible it is to resolve things and just to accept this flawed echoing between the voices. These voices that travel far and then they bounce back again and emitting and transmitting and speaking and receiving become confused. And in the end, I feel what she's telling us is, well, this is the best that we human beings can attain. That's it. Thank you.